This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. From MPB Think Radio, this is Creature Comforts, the show all about your animals and the animals around you. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, the retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. Manatees are nature's gentle giants, embodying a sense of tranquility that puts even the busiest minds at ease. With their endearing faces and curious personalities, these cows of the seas have captured the hearts of countless admirers worldwide. So from the Dolphin Island Sea Lab, we'll talk with Dr. Ruth Carmichael about the manatee population in the Gulf of Mexico and their role in that ecosystem. Also, Dr. Major and Libby are here ready for pet questions and encounters with nature that you'd like to share with us. To join our conversation this morning, you can email animals at mpbonline.org. Always like to remind you that if you miss Creature Comforts on Thursday, it repeats every Saturday morning at 6. So good morning, Libby. Let's uh, start with you still out west. What uh, recent observations would you like to share with us? Oh, gosh. Um, I've been watching towhees here. And what we've got are spotted towhees, and I've been hearing them a lot and seeing them. And it's a great reminder of home because we see so many eastern towhees in Mississippi. And so that, that's, that was fun. I've been hearing them, in fact, this morning. I don't like to stress birds when they're nesting, so I usually won't play the call, you know, and try to get a response because you, you just don't want to interfere too much but i played this morning just to see if i needed to uh listen to uh in case we wanted to play it on the radio and right away uh toby came down to the tree close to me and started talking so they're they're definitely going this morning and it's it's only 60 degrees out there right now so um which is a little different so i know i'm not in mississippi right now Speaking of Mississippi and the heat, uh, let me throw this in real quick. How do birds regulate their body temperatures when it gets to be so hot? Um, I think it's pretty hard for them in a lot of ways because, you know, they're warm-blooded animals, too. They uh, puff up that insulation, and um, somehow, I don't quite understand, but the down is supposed to protect them from the heat in some ways similar to how it can protect them from the cold. So they do have some ways. They need a lot of water in the summer, so that's something to remember. If you want birds in your yard, you really need to provide uh, clean, fresh water for them, especially when they're nesting and it's hot like it is right now. And this is just the height of nesting season still. So uh, a little water would be greatly appreciated, I'm sure. And sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but what else are you seeing out there? Okay. Oh, one thing that I want to mention before I get back to that is my manatee experience, which was years ago, I guess probably in 2010 or 2011, uh, I was in Homosassa Springs for Christmas, and we got to swim with the manatee there, and it was just incredibly exciting. Our whole family did it. And um, my niece was there with a little girl who, uh, I guess she was maybe five at the time, 
four or five even, and she had a really exciting time. We rented a, a boat and um, just a little kind of a party barge kind of a boat and dove off of that with the uh, manatees. It was so much fun, and I've always wanted to do it again and um, kept up with Ruth's work since that time. So I'm anxious to hear what she has to say about manatee. It would just be fantastic to be able to see them on the Mississippi coast. Mm-hmm. And evidently there are some occasional sightings. I know they're all in Alabama. So any other observations from out west? Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of anything to say that's really different. We're seeing, a, a, I see a lot of scrub jays. We have a cherry tree in the backyard and then one in the front yard. So I've got a lot of jays right now going back and forth between the two trees gorging on all the cherries that I can't reach on the top anyway, so I'm glad to see them, and you don't want cherries to go to waste. So uh, that's been fun, too. And I, I'm trying to think of what the towhees are eating, because they're scratching around in the yard. They're a ground eater, and they um, they make a good bit of noise in the leaves, and uh, it's, it's another example of an animal that benefits from us leaving the leaf litter alone in our yards. Don't break up all the leaves. A, a lot of birds profit from from keeping, I, you know, I don't want to say a messy yard, but a little bit of a, a roughness in your yard can be a good thing. They like taller grass and they like to have, you know, leaf litter so that, because so many little invertebrates live in the leaf litter and that's the beginnings of these food chains that we all like to watch. So for mammals and birds, it's a good thing to have some leaf litter. So anyway, they're scratching around out there. It's really dry here now. So it's we don't have the heat as bad. We'll we'll have three or four hours of of you know high eighties or nineties today. And we've it's even hit a hundred while we've you know, while we've been here for the last couple of weeks. Uh, in the afternoon sometimes. But it's it's good to remember to leave some places for birds to forage for food. As usual, Dr. Troy Major has joined us from his uh, clinic in Jackson. Dr. Major, good morning. Got a couple of uh, cat emails for you here. This first one says, I have a two-year-old Siamese male, neutered, mostly indoor, but in the backyard a few hours a day with his brother and sister of the same age, all rescues and in good health. The Siamese will kneel down and weave his head left and right while hacking. Sounds like a hairball, but not always with anything coming out. Should I be concerned, and if so, what can I do to help him? You know, that's a great question. I can't quite visualize what this cat is doing, whether he's trying to throw up or trying to sneeze. Uh, that may be uh, kind of a hard hard thing to answer based on the description, but uh, I would say that so he's inside-outside cat. Mm-hmm. And my questions would be, does he have any respiratory nasal discharge or eye situation? And, and I wonder how old he is. So these are all questions that I would ask. If, in fact, he continually does this, I would get him in to see your vet. There may be something hung in his throat or in his nostril. But uh, it is a little strange behavior if he described weaving his head back and back, back and forth. So I'm not sure exactly what's going on with him. I wish I could get more information. 
Uh, but in general, if you're a pet owner, you know kind of what your pet's normal behavior is. And when something like this starts, maybe not necessarily rush to the vet, but at least give the vet a call and say, hey, my cat's been doing this. You know, does this something that I should be concerned with? Right. And if it continues, certainly there could be a problem. And that's, that's what I was trying to say. I don't have uh, enough information to really make an uh, educated guess as to what's going on with this cat. All right. Uh, email number two says, my son and his wife have three cats, two males and a female. All have been spayed or neutered. They stay indoors 95% of the time. They've coexisted peacefully for three to four years until just recently. One of, them, one of the males and the female siblings have become quite antagonistic toward the second male. It seems to have started quite suddenly. Any idea of what's going on or how they might be able to restore the peace? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, it does happen. And we see cats that whether they change a personality or whether there's something that happened to cause this, uh, what shall I say, ganging up on this one cat. If they're going outside, did they say they're inside, outside? Uh, it said 95% indoor. Yeah. Uh, sometimes there can be another cat involved, outside cat possibility, uh, tomcat or another cat, and certainly that could change the dynamics just by the pheromones that are there. One of the things that's recommended and has helped in some cases where you have this situation with cats that have been getting along okay and then all of a sudden they aren't, would put to do one of the maternal pheromone um, calming collar or the spray. They have a spray uh, fell away, I believe, makes it, and they have plug-ins as well uh, that you can plug into the electrical socket and it emits the pheromone. So this is something you might consider uh, from the standpoint of what's going on. The other thing is if this cat that is being picked on, so to speak, be sure that there's nothing wrong with him, uh, that he doesn't have an issue uh, health-wise, they may sense that and actually be uh, uh, concerned about him from the standpoint and then picking on him. So with the, with the pheromone collar, you would put it on the cats that are the aggressive ones, the, the one that's being attacked, or maybe all of the above? I think I'd go with all of the above. Uh, some people have used the spray with good effect. In other words, when they're having an issue to spray that spray, it's just a misspray, and it's safe to use. The other thing, as I said, would be the plug-in uh, diffuser. But frankly, most of the time you have to put it in just about every room that the cat goes into so if i'm going to do the collar i would go with all all three of the cats all right very good kevin farrell here with dr troy major and libby hartfield if you want to join our conversation this morning with your question or comment you can email the show by sending it to animals at mpbonline.org all phone lines are open so if you have a comment or question go ahead and jump on the phone right now and let's get things started we're going to welcome our guest to the show. It's going to be for the hour, Dr. Ruth Carmichael from the Dolphin Island Sea Lab at the Alabama Center for Marine Education and Research. Dr. Carmichael, thanks for joining us. Before we dive into your work, give us a little idea about your background and how you got into the field of studying marine life. Well, good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Um, like all great marine scientists, uh, I began life in Kansas. <laughs> Um, And had a lot of people tell me that you can't be be a marine scientist and be from Kansas, but um, here I am. Uh, I actually have a degree in biology from the University of Chicago, and then I did my graduate work at Boston University. So I have a a master's degree and a PhD from Boston University. And at the time, they had a joint program 
uh, with the um, Marine Biological Laboratory in Woods Hole. So I actually spent a lot of time uh, on Cape Cod doing my early research there and then had a faculty position at one of the University of Maine campuses, which was way too cold. So I had to find someplace warmer and ended up here at the Dauphin Island Sea Lab and um, also a faculty at the University of South Alabama. So you, you, we've got the warmer part down for you. So uh, that that's that's good, I guess. <laughs> Although <laughs> it's been a little bit too warm, I think, for most of us uh, this past past month or so. But um, so Mississippi's and manatees are two words that you don't hear every day. But uh, talk to us about the manatee sightings that you've documented in the Gulf of Mexico. Sure. And uh, actually, I do hear Mississippi and manatees almost every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's it's safe to say now. You know, we've we started our manatee sighting network back in 2007 at the request of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, They actually reached out to the Dauphin Island Sea Lab and said, hey, you know, we think we're seeing or getting more reports of manatees along the Alabama-Mississippi coast, and we are looking for an ecologist who basically has the skills to to figure this out, figure out what's really going on. And uh, fortunately, I school with a woman who I lovingly refer to as a manatee whisperer. Um, I'm actually an invertebrate zoologist by training, and I called her up and said, hey, you know, we have some really cool questions, and we have the ecological skills to answer them. We never thought we'd work together, but would you like to? And so we put together a proposal, and she promptly got funded to go study African manatees, but um, connected me with some excellent colleagues that we still collaborate with out of Florida. And we've been, um, you know, started with the Manatee Sighting Network, which was just basically a way for us to get, you know, now it's its its own field of science, citizen science, but it was a way for us, you know, back then before citizen science was sort of a as familiar a coined term as it is now, it was a way for us to just basically enlist members of the public to let us know when and where they're seeing animals and get a handle on what's going on. And in the last 16 years, this program has really taken off. We have two papers now on the success of our citizen science program. We've actually helped other states develop similar programs and and even some of our collaborators at the periphery of Manatees Range in Florida have worked with us to start sighting networks. And we've documented more than 6,000 manatee sightings, all of which ultimately get processed and go through the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, so everything gets processed up, you know, the channels to the official authorities, and we get um, about tenfold fewer sightings out of Mississippi than Alabama, but I also sometimes wonder, especially at this point, if a lot of that has to do with our reach, so it's part of the reason why I'm really happy to be here today to get a chance to remind people to be on the lookout for these animals, because we do see them um, quite regularly in Pascagoula River, Back Bay, Biloxi, Bay St. Louis, and now even all the way into, you know, through Louisiana into Texas, all the way to the Mexico border. So for people that might be maybe familiar with manatees, but don't know a whole lot about them, uh, describe them. What, what, how big are they? Uh, give us some ideas, some just maybe basic manatee facts. Sure, absolutely. Um, so most people are probably familiar with these, um, having experience similar to what Libby described earlier about maybe going to Crystal River or going to Homosassa and seeing them or having a chance to snorkel with them. And they are these very large sort of sometimes referred to as floaty potatoes. Um, they're referred to as sea cows or mermaids. Um, they're sort of homely looking. I think they're they're graceful and beautiful, um, but they can be 
you know, any, typically around 1,200 pounds, but you sometimes you'll see them in captivity up to 3,500 pounds. So they're very large. And they are, again, are typically 10 to 12 feet long, but maybe as much as 13 feet long. Um, in, in captivity, they seem they tend to eat really well and maybe don't get as much exercise as the ones in nature. So the ones in nature tend to be a little bit more streamlined. Uh, what about uh, habitat? What makes great manatee habitat? Sure. Um, actually, our waters right here on the northern Gulf make excellent manatee habitat. Um, two major features of their habitat or drivers of where they spend time, uh, well, three, I'll say, are the salinity. So they, they require fresh water. So unlike dolphins and whales that are typically found offshore and are uh, marine, really, truly marine obligate animals, uh, manatees need fresh water. They require fresh water to live. And that's why we see them a lot of times where people are at this sort of land-sea interface and up in our brackish water estuaries. Uh, they also require warm waters, relatively warm waters. So temperatures about 68 degrees Fahrenheit or 20 degrees Celsius is their preferred sort of threshold for long-term survival. So when it gets colder than about 68 degrees Fahrenheit, they need to find warmer water. And then, of course, food resources. And that's what we have in abundance here on the northern Gulf Coast. Um, they love all of that submerged aquatic vegetation. Um, often the vegetation that if you're a local boater, you find a nuisance because it mucks up your prop in our in our estuaries. Um, but that's manatee food. And, and they love, you know, sort of classically people think about seagrasses, but they like any kind of submerged or emergent vegetation. They'll even eat detrital things. They'll even nibble on lawn grass, they'll denude branches of overhanging trees, pretty much any kind of vegetation that they can wrap their lips around, they will they will devour. You're listening to Creature Comforts, and today we're visiting with Dr. Ruth Carmichael from the Dolphin Island Sea Lab, going to be talking about manatees throughout the hour. So if you have a question for Dr. Carmichael or a pet question, or you want to share with us something that you've encountered in nature recently, you can always send an email to animals at mpbonline.org. So let's talk about the role of the manatee in the ocean's ecosystem. Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, so manatees, you know, given what we just talked about, um, you know, they the, their love of vegetation, they're major herbivores. So they are really important in terms of uh, at the base of the food web. So they are major consumers. They'll eat one to 200 pounds of vegetation a day. Uh, and, you know, so they are they're also considered... Um, sort of these umbrella species where if your water quality is good enough to support manatees and provide good manatee habitat, that's sort of a good sign. Uh, it tends, tends to be indicative of good habitat for other species as well. And what about uh, the range? What uh, kind of range do these creatures have? Yeah, that's a really uh, excellent and very timely question. Uh, historically, manatees have been largely sort of... Um, confined to or occurring in, at least in the United States, in peninsular Florida. Now, there are actually three species of manatees globally. Um, the West Indian manatee is the one that occurs here in the United States off the Caribbean, and it's the one that you know we probably think of the most, and it has been sort of historically in the peninsular Florida area. But over the last several years, we've watched these animals um, at least at first, people thought it was accidentally that they were making their way even up the Atlantic coast all the way up to Cape Cod. There was an animal named Dennis for many, many years that kept repeatedly going back up to Dennis, 
Massachusetts and have to be rescued and brought back to Florida. Um, and then there are animals that would make their way across the Gulf Coast where we are. And it was you know, largely considered accidental until we started our program and demonstrated that not only is it not accidental, we actually see many times the same animals coming back year after year after year. Um, and then we realize that it's that we're also seeing increasing numbers through time of animals coming here. And so we're watching, you know, one of the cool things about our program is we just happened, you know, I'd love to say it was by design, but we just happened to start studying these animals right at a time when their range was changing. And so we're now regularly seeing animals all the way into Texas and up along the Atlantic coast, at least into South Carolina and North Carolina, which hadn't really happened um, extensively in recent history. Um, we do think this is driven by two major factors. One is population recovery, which has been happening for many years uh, among the Florida population. And that's a great, you know, it's a wonderful conservation success that the numbers have been increasing. But if you think about it, you know, in terms of their habitat and resources that we were just talking about, those have not also been increasing. And so these animals are likely experiencing some habitat squeeze essentially because their numbers are recovering, but their habitat and food resources are either staying the same or declining as we're urbanizing the shoreline and, and making changes to the resources. And then you add to that climate variation, which is likely making it possible for these animals to move out further north and further west and potentially to stay longer in those areas, um, potentially even into what would have been previously a cold season that they might not have been able to survive. So I think we're at the cusp of watching a change in distribution right now. That's exciting that you, as you mentioned, that it's sort of just a good luck or whatever that you started studying there, but <laughs> that must be really fascinating to kind of watch as their range expands like that. Yeah, it's been really interesting. And and the really cool thing about it is that, you know, it's not even really so much a range expansion as it is a re-expansion in some cases, because we have manatees in the fossil record, even here along the northern Gulf Coast. Um, and, you know, what we think happened was that as their populations declined, they became more limited to you know, areas where they could stay year round. And so I think we're seeing some combination of range expansion and re-expansion into areas they previously occupied. So earlier you mentioned the Manatee Sighting Network, a citizen science project where you get, uh, I guess, uh, reports of sightings. How does that work? And if people are interested, uh, how, do they, how would they get involved? Yeah, that, thank you. That's excellent. Um, we take sightings all the time, so 24-7, 365 days a year. Uh, we just encourage people to give us a call anywhere. You know, our, our core area is Alabama, Mississippi, but we do take sighting reports from anywhere that they occur, and we have, in fact, documented sightings all over the southeast United States um, and in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, but people can call our hotline, which the number is one 493 or they can reach us by email at manatee at D-I-S-L dot E-D-U. Or we are also online. You can just Google uh, Manatee Sighting Network, Dauphin Island Sea Lab, or type in manatee dot D-I-S-L dot E-D-U, and you will get us. And we take sightings um, by phone, in person. Uh, if you go to our website, you can actually, I always say if you're if you uh, if you're shy and you don't want to talk to people, that's okay. <laughs> you just go online, and we actually have a a form you can fill out online, and you can enter your sighting reports right there, or you can shoot us an email, and we'll follow up with you and collect all the information that's needed. Um, but you know, we have just been really 
pleased with how successful the the public response has been and how you know um, you know this is really a huge part of our science being able to document these these animals all over because they're relatively few of us and without our citizen network we wouldn't be able to do this so we're very grateful for everyone's contributions and I guess you would probably be interested in as much information as someone can gather you know where they are maybe how many they saw if the, the size of them the time of day possibly Perfect. Yeah, we are normally asking people to report at least, um, you know, if, if you have your GPS coordinates, that's great. But if not, if you can give us some good landmarks, we can figure that out. So good landmarks about where you are, the date, the time, and the number of animals you think you've cited. Um, that's enough key information to get us going. Um, we just ask people, you know, if you can take photos, that's fantastic. Uh, we ask people to stay about 100 feet away to give manatees their space. We don't want to harass them. We don't want to do anything that would interfere with their normal behavior. Um, and actually, that's the coolest way to observe manatees anyway. You get to see the coolest stuff if they don't even know you're there and you just get to watch them quietly. Uh, so we, you know, ask people, you know, definitely take pictures, definitely send us your cool stories. We love to hear all of them. And that's the basic information that we need to, to contribute to our science and make a meaningful difference. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major, veterinarian at the Animal Medical Center in Jackson, and Libby Hartfield, retired director of the Mississippi Museum of Natural Science. It's Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. Our guest for the hour is Dr. Ruth Carmichael, senior marine scientist at the Dolphin Island Sea Lab. If you miss any of today's show, you can subscribe to the podcast using your preferred podcasting app, or better still, download the MPB Public Media app, then you get to listen to all the local MPB Think Radio programs on your schedule. You can email animals at mpbonline.org. We have a caller on the line, so let's say good morning to Rachel, who calls us from Eupora. Good morning, Rachel. Go ahead. Good morning. So my question is, how large does an adult manatee get in pounds and in uh, feet long? Good morning, Rachel. Uh, yeah, they'll they'll typically, if you see one in nature and it's an adult, it'll most likely be around maybe 1,200 pounds and maybe 10 to 12 feet long. But in captivity, they can get maybe upwards of 3,000 to 3,500 pounds. And so that's, you know, we're talking tonnage there. <laughs> and then uh-huh. uh, up to maybe 13 feet long. So the, the tricky thing with manatees is if you're observing them from a boat or from a shoreline, very often about half their body is still hanging down kind of in the water. And so they can look much shorter or you know smaller than they actually are. I see. Okay, great. Well, thank you for that answer, Dr. Carl. You're welcome. Enjoying the show. Thanks, Rachel. Always good to hear from you. We've got some open phone lines. If you're listening and would like to join the conversation, give us a call at one eight seven seven mpb ring It's one 672 7464 And you can always send us an email as well to animals at mpbonline.org. So, Dr. Karma, we talked about the uh, this, the manatee sighting network and that, that you appreciate the work that the citizen scientists do to help uh, understand more about manatees. How easy is it f- to spot a manatee when folks are out and about in the water? You know, it's really interesting. We have certain people who are, we consider them to be part of our network, you know, regular sighters. Uh, often people who are coastal homeowners who get a chance to spend time just sitting out on their docks. Uh, people who... Uh, you know, we'll get a lot of calls from folks who are doing construction, like people who are building piers and working on the shoreline. And one of my sort of catchphrases is more floating, less boating. That's how you see a manatee. Uh, And I, I say that because very often if you're in the boat and you're on the go, 
you'll miss them. You might even boat right past them and not even realize they're there. But if you're sitting in one place, so you know, like the folks who are sitting on their piers in the evening or in the morning having coffee, um, they'll repeatedly see the animals, you know, come by often day after day for several days in a row. Um, so, you know, sitting quietly is a great way to spot them. Uh, having said that, they're tricky, right? Because unlike a dolphin, dolphins have these wonderful dorsal fins that stick up out of the water so you can see them coming. And manatees don't. And, and it's kind of surprising to think that this animal that could be 1,200 pounds and 13 feet long could be stealthy, but they are incredibly stealthy. <laughs> and so they can move around, you know, under the water and almost just be invisible. Um, sometimes what we'll hear from people is, you know, they'll hear the which is when the animal comes up and breathes, it'll just stick its nose up. It looks like a little hairy coconut that sticks up above the water and they'll expel air. And so sometimes you can hear that. And then if you look in that direction, you may just see kind of like little voids on the water, which are a series of, looks like a series of little plates on the water. And that's as the manatee moves under the water and moves its fluke, its tail, it'll create these little voids on the water. And that's kind of like the manatee's footprint that you'll sometimes see. And that may be all you see. You know, maybe maybe if you're lucky, you get to see a little rounded back or if there's a group around you, you might get to see them sort of milling or cavorting around or just resting. You know, they spend maybe 12 hours a day just resting. And so you can imagine how it'd be very easy to just boat past them or walk past them and not even realize that they're there. So do they usually travel in groups? So certain times of the year, you're more likely to see them in groups. And typically, and that's usually those groups are the groups, they're the mating groups. Um, and that's usually the only reason why they they travel in groups. Um, they don't form pods the way we think about dolphins and whales forming pods. For manatees, you'll sometimes get pairs of young males who will spend time together. You'll have mother calf pairs that are for you know a few years while the calf is nursing. And then you'll have these breeding herds that get together. And so we'll see that in our area typically in the later summer, so around now. However, like all wildlife, they like to break rules, and as soon as scientists set rules for them, and we think we understand those boundaries, they do something different, which is why I love animals. They're fantastic because they break all those rules that we try to set. Um, but this year, for example, we had manatees in herds almost immediately um, in, in early parts of the season, late May, early June. Um, so, you know, you know, some of this, this is the stuff we're trying to figure out. Like, what are those cues that's making certain activities, certain life history events happen at certain times and under certain conditions? And that's a big part of our targeted research is trying to characterize all these things and, and unravel those mysteries. Uh, tell us a little bit about the manatee stranding response with the Alabama Marine Mammal Stranding Network. Yes, great. Um, so the Alabama Marine Mammal Stranding Network um, we work very closely with them. That's part of the Marine Mammal Research Program in the state of Alabama and as a partner to the Manatee Sighting Network. And they respond to all of the manatee in distress or stranded manatees or manatee mortalities in the state of Mississippi and in the state of Alabama. And we're the only ones in either of the states that are permitted to respond to manatee strandings. Um, and so the the while these events are unfortunate, um, you know, it's a really important opportunity for us, you know, if possible, to get a chance to assess an animal's condition, determine if there's intervention needed. Uh, most of the time we err on the side of trying not to intervene and let animals kind of work things out for themselves, which mostly they do. Um, but in cases where that's not possible, we may need to intervene with uh, some kind of rescue. And we have successfully rescued and, and been part of rehabilitation for two manatees in our area 
that had stranded and due to cold stress. And that's cold stress is the number one cause of mortality in our region. Um, throughout their range, it's boat strikes, uh, but in our area, it's cold stress. And so when it does get too cold, if they haven't left our area in time or they've just stayed too long, they can succumb to some um, conditions that ultimately shut down their body and will lead to lead to mortality if there's not an intervention. You're listening to Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio, and we're visiting today with Dr. Ruth Carmichael, the senior marine scientist at the Dolphin Island Sea Lab, and she's letting us uh, learn more about manatees. Um, so how do manatees in the Gulf of Mexico differ from populations found in other regions, and what can you learn from those differences? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think probably <laughs> one of the big things about our manatee population is it's probably the best studied <laughs> So we've been studying manatees for a long time here, um, even though not necessarily here in the Gulf per se, but we've definitely been studying them a long time. Um, there are differences to some extent in specifics of their diet and also specific threats in different locations. Um, but in terms of their general lifestyle, it's quite quite similar. Um, but, you know, for example, African manatees, um, one of their major threats is that they'll get caught in local fishing nets. And they've also been observed to feed on fish more frequently. Now we think that our manatees may be doing a little bit of that too, but we often think about them as being primarily herbivorous. Um, So there's some of these different strategies that are really interesting to compare across these different um, populations in the world. So we mentioned earlier how hot it's been, this extreme heat. Uh, Have you been able to study um, maybe not just manatees, but how the other marine creatures are being affected by this this brutal heat that we're having? Um, That's a great question. So for manatees, what we have seen, not just this year, but, you know, in in any years when it gets hot, one of their strategies is to find deeper channels like even the mobile shipping channel, um, some of our boating channels, and they'll go to the bottom and they'll find cooler water. So they'll hang out in cooler waters and find, you know, um, cooler spaces to hang out. Uh, But we haven't seen at least that I'm aware of, any um, thermal limitation on the upper end for manatees in our area. They just, you know, they kind of manage it the way we do. They find cool places to hang out to beat the heat. I think earlier you had mentioned that they rest about up to 12 hours a day. If if that's right, is it because they're such large creatures? Why, why are they resting all the time? <laughs> they have really low me- metabolism, those floaty potatoes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so they will... Uh, have certain times of the day, you know, this is another thing we've been sort of working on is trying to figure out exactly what their local movement patterns are related to. And we think, you know, sometimes because they're smart too, right? Animals are all smart. They figure out ways to to do things that maximize conservation of energy. So we found things like um, sometimes they'll use boating and shipping channels like flumes. And they seem to be like when the tide's coming out, if they can use that that boating channel or that shipping channel as a, as like a flume to ride the water out when the tide's going out or ride the water in as the tide's going in. Um, and, and so they're, they're always cleverly trying to find ways to conserve energy and these guys in particular with their low metabolism. So if you ever observe changes in behavior or interactions with other marine species in the manatees, how do you go about trying to figure out what exactly the cause of the change of behavior is? So we do, um, we also do tagged animals. We have tagged animals um, and we have been tagging animals since about 2009 and we've tagged 16 animals, you know, in all, um, mostly from capture and tagging events of healthy animals, but also for a couple of animals that were rescue and rehabilitated animals. And so that gives us an opportunity to observe 
behavior in a little bit more structured way. As you can imagine, it's it's even hard art for us because, you know, we have relatively few animals and so much water that we can't always necessarily know we're going to go to location X and be able to watch the animals. It's it's a little more happenstance. So the tagging provides us opportunities to do structured, regular observations of these animals. And so some of the things that we've been able to do, and, and this isn't anything we invented, this is stuff that researchers have been doing, you know, for years and years out of Florida, um, but there are certain categories of behavior. So we'll go do 30-minute focal observations and s- sit near that animal and just observe what they're doing over certain periods of time. So whether it's feeding or resting or cavorting or milling, these are all actual defined specific behaviors that we can watch and categorize. And then we can relate them to things like the presence of certain kinds of vegetation. Are they more likely to be eating or doing something else? Or um, certain salinities or certain times of day, are they more likely to be engaging in certain types of behavior? And so that's been very useful. Um, Something else that we've been working on, um, one of my postdocs has been working on that's really cool, is trying to determine if there's specific information we can get from the tag itself, like the patterns of the tips and dips in the tag, or how quickly animals are moving from one location to another that tells us something about their behavior. So can we relate, you know, and some of this makes perfect sense, right? If an animal is uh, moving from one place to another in a directed movement, then that's more likely to be traveling than if they're taking their time and they're changing direction all the time. Well, that by definition is more likely to be milling, right? Um, And so so it kind of makes sense to be able to quantitatively be able to use this information from the tag to also define those behaviors and relate them to habitat and food resources. Because if we can do that, that also means we don't have to be there all the time. We can actually understand what the animal's doing even when we're not seeing them. And so we're always looking for strategies to be able to do that so that we can learn more about their behavior and the conditions under which they're doing certain things. You're listening to Creature Comforts. Kevin Farrell here with Dr. Troy Major and Libby Hartfield. And our guest for the hour is Dr. Ruth Carmichael from the Dolphin Island Sea Lab. Kent has called in, and he's on the line from Mobile. Good morning, Kent. Go ahead. Good morning. Uh, Thanks for taking the call. Uh, I, too, am a Kansas boy, and I claim (laughs) I was water deployed as a child, and uh, I also moved south to stay warm. Uh, even the Kansas winters were too cold. But since I've been here, we've had the opportunity to go down to Crystal River uh, a time or two and uh, snorkel around with the manatees down there. And they're pretty docile and pretty well accustomed to having humans around. They don't seem to be very, uh, they're not afraid of humans at all. You just have to be really careful around them. And the rangers down there are really strict. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you don't. Uh, the, the rule is you cannot swim toward a manatee. Uh, you have to wait till the manatee comes to you, and they do. Uh, one of them, uh, I think, probably a young female, uh, swam up to me, and I I touched her on the on the stomach on the chest, and she hurled her flipper arm, whatever you call that around my hand and sort of hugged me. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was a real connection with the animal. And they are very docile and friendly. Uh, I, I really, We really enjoyed our experience with them. Great phone call, Kent. Thank you so much. That's a, a, an up-close personal uh, observation of being with the manatees. And Dr. Carmichael, do you have a similar experience, maybe a memorable manatee experience that you could share with us? 
I am very fortunate to have had a lot of memorable manatee experiences. Um, I do want to say, Kent, I think you did everything right. Um, one of the best ways to interact with manatees, you know, in places where you're allowed to do that. Now, do understand here in our waters, you're not legally allowed to interact with them, to touch them, to swim with them. But in those designated areas where you can in Florida and where the visibility is great, um, you know, the best way to do that is to just hang in the water. And I always, you know, someone, one of my colleagues told me this, you know, be the manatee, right? So if you as the human be the manatee, more times than not, they will come to you, they will check you out, they will feel you all over with their little lips, they'll touch you with their flippers, they really want to check you out. Um, unfortunately, because they are so docile, and they're so gentle, and, you know, people tend to anthropomorphize a bit, um, they get overloved, you know, and, and that's why the rangers, you know, you were talking about them being so strict. In part, it's because people kind of lose their minds and get excited, and they get a little too aggressive, and the manatees get overloved. And you can actually see it if you just go there and you watch people's interactions, um, which, you know, we go there to train because we know there's manatees there and the water visibility is great. Um, but you can watch the manatees will get fed up with people, and then they will go and they'll make a beeline to their little protected area that's kind of roped off and they'll all pile up in there when they're done, when they're done with people. And so I think um, you did everything right, letting the manatees come to you and not um, chasing them down. I think that's, that's, that's great. Great. Again, thanks, Ken. That was a great phone call and uh, give us an idea of what it's like to be with these gentle giants. Um, so, uh, Dr. Carmichael, got a few minutes left. If you would, let's uh, remind folks about the... Um, the Manatee Sighting Network, and if people want to participate or if they see a manatee, how they can get in touch with y'all. Fantastic. Yes. You can give us a call at one 493 5803. We have an, sort of an emergency hotline through that number, but also we have a non-emergency line, and you can do things like request informative doc signs. You can volunteer if you'd like to be part of our network. We have trainings periodically where we will train people to be members of our sighting network and also to be volunteers for our program to do outreach and education and assist with our research. Um, and then you can also report sightings that way or to us online or just find out more information at our website at manatee.disl.edu or via email at manatee at disl.edu. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the the, the Sea Lab. What, uh, what goes on at the Dolphin Island Sea Lab? So the Dolphin Island Sea Lab is the marine science uh, research and education consortial outlet for all of the 22 public and private universities in the state of Alabama. So anyone who wants to get a degree in marine sciences or marine biology in Alabama ultimately at some point has to come through and take our summer courses. They are open, of course, broadly. Um, I even have, I'm teaching a summer course right now and I have a student from Vir Virginia. So we get students who come from all over, but they can take our summer courses here. We also have an outstanding K through 12 education program. They do summer and year round programs for students from schools all over the country. And then, of course, we have our university programs, which is the department that I'm in, which is the undergraduate and graduate education. And we most of us are affiliated with you know, one of the universities here in the state of Alabama, and we take graduate students. And so we do also a variety of research. We do everything from toxicology, um, biogeochemical cycling, phytoplankton ecology. We've got folks who do coral reef ecology, fish physiology and fish ecology, and of course, marine mammal research and um, 
we now have a vet on staff and out here for our marine mammal research program. And so we can do a lot of pathology and understanding causes of death, which has been really exciting and interesting um, for us to build into that area as well. And I always like to remind you that uh, if you see something when you're out and about that you can't identify and a, a creature and you need some assistance, if you'll take a picture of it with your smartphone and send it to animals at mpbonline.org, we'll see if we can't help you figure out what you're seeing. Creature Conference is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio with funding provided by listeners. To hear today's show or a previous show, you can visit creaturecomforts.mpbonline.org. Our show is produced by Java Cap, and our call screener today was Liz Gill. So for Dr. Troy Major, Libby Hartfield, and our guest, Dr. Ruth Carmichael, I'm Kevin Farrell. We'll be back next Thursday at 9 for Creature Comforts, heard only on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.